Luke 15, 11 through 32. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was a still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he was received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in, and his father came out and entreated him. And he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Uh, in her book called A Field Guide to Getting Lost, Rebecca Solnit, she tells the story of one of her friends, Sally, who works on a search and rescue team in the Rocky Mountains. And she remembers her telling this uh, story of a very frantic search of a, a young 11-year-old boy who had gotten lost, and, and he was deaf, and he was losing his sight, and he had been playing a game of hide-and-seek, and he had wandered off. They didn't find him. It was one afternoon. They didn't find him that night. He, he survived a, a harrowing night out in the wilderness. And uh, the next morning when the sun rose, the search and rescue team finally was able to find him. Uh, but Sally and, and other search and rescuers out of this book note how, um, 
how kids oftentimes are a lot easier to find when they get lost in the Rocky Mountains than adults. And they say because the one, the key to survival is knowing and admitting that you're lost. And so kids, what they typically do when they get lost is they just stop. They find a sheltered place. They hunker down. They wait for rescue. And she says, unlike adults who desperately try to save themselves and get into worse and worse situations and not being able to be found, kids just stop and will wait for rescue. Jesus is telling this parable, and it's the third of a series of three parables, to a group of people. They're called the Pharisees. They're a very religious people. But he's telling this parable to try to explain to them what it means to be lost. And them understanding what it means to be lost, that there might be hope that they could be rescued and be found. And so this parable of the prodigal son, right, it's Jesus' attempt to this group of people and broader, to us today, is to answer the question, what does it really mean to be lost and found? That phrase appears twice in this parable. This son was lost, now he's found. He was lost, now he was found. And Jesus is saying, let me explain what it means to be lost and to be found. So first, what does it mean to be lost and found? First, it means relationally lost in sin. This is the third of three parables. It's about something precious that was lost and is now found. We see the lost sheep. We see the lost coin. And now we see the lost son. And look at how God, Jesus, in ramping up these stories, is building and building and building. It starts off with an animal, a sheep that's lost. Then it goes to an inanimate object, a coin, but now it gets to an actual person, a son, a beloved son who is lost. Typically, we read this story and we talk about the lost son, the one lost son. The reality is this is a story, a parable about two lost sons. And while their lives look drastically different, I mean drastically different, one gets the inheritance and goes off and parties it away, the other stays very close to the house. He's a rule follower. Drastically different on the surface. They're, the manner in which they are lost in sin is identical. And let me try to explain that. First, neither one of these sons had an intimate relationship with their father. Neither one. In fact, you see the, the younger son in verse 12 who says, give me the share of the property. Now, what was he asking? Uh, in that day, it was common cultural practice that the father or the patriarch of a family, when he died, he would divide the inheritance between the sons. And that happened when he died. This younger son is saying, give me the property now. Give me my inheritance now, which is essentially saying, dad, I wish you were dead. I want it now. It was an insult, and it revealed his heart. He, he really didn't care about having an intimate relationship with his father. He didn't really want his father, he wanted his father's stuff. Now you go to the second son, the older son, and he's in exactly the same place. It's a little more veiled, it's a little harder to see. But the older son doesn't want an intimate relationship with his father, didn't have an intimate relationship with his father. If you look at verse 29, 
What's he say? These many years I have served you, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. He's essentially saying the same thing that the younger son said. I just want your stuff so I can go have my party with my friends. Now, what does this teach us about being lost in sin? Both sons had a transactional relationship with the father. It was a transactional relationship that was about them getting something. Now, when you look at verse 17, and this is where the, the son, the younger son, it comes to his senses or he came to himself, he said. Typically, we read that what follows as the son's repentance, the younger son's repentance. I want you to look a little, a little more closely. What does the younger son say? after he comes to his senses, he comes to himself. The first thing he says is, my father's hired servants. Now, these are the day laborers. These are the ones that are the lowest of the low in the father's, this father's estate. They have plenty of food. I don't. I mean, this, is, this younger son is starving. He's hungry. He needs food. And he says, ha, ah, I know who has food. My father. What's he say next? He says, I have sinned. You say, oh, he, okay, we're, we're moving the right way. We're moving towards repentance. It gets even better, right? What's he say next? I am no longer worthy to be called your son. You say, wow, he's really moving there. He's moving towards repentance. But then what does he say? What's his next statement? He says, treat me as one of your hired servants. You see, this wasn't repentance. This was self-preservation. This is a younger son who was starving. <laughs> he needed food or he was gonna die. And his father had food. And he basically says, I'm gonna go back and I'm going to work for my food. I'll be a hired servant. He wasn't wanting back in the family. He wasn't asking to be back in the family. He wasn't seeking an intimate relationship with his father. He just, he had a need. And his father had something that could maybe help that need. And he says, I'm gonna go work for it. I'm gonna be a hired servant. You see, he wanted to transactionally relate to his father to get what he wanted, which is what sent him off in that wild chase in the first place. And then you go to the, the older son. He reveals his transactional relationship with the father. In verse 29, he says, I've served you. I never disobeyed your command. And what? You never gave me what I wanted. And so what you see here are two sons Neither of them had an intimate relationship with the father, nor did they want one. It was transactional. And what do we learn about this? What do we learn through this? That sin is relational, not just behavioral. That sin, at the heart, the core of sin, is a, a relational breach, not just misbehavior that sin runs so much deeper. Let me explain this through a couple of parallel passages because it's been this way throughout the story of the Bible. It's been this way throughout the story of God's people. Matthew chapter nine, verses 10 to 13. Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. And the, the Pharisees say to uh, Jesus' disciples, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's the same setup we see here in Luke 15. Except in Luke 15, they just mutter and grumble and ask the question, why is Jesus eating with these people? And Jesus' response in Matthew 9 is very, very intriguing. He says in verse 13 of Matthew 9, 
Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, Jesus is defining the core of sin here. You say, how? He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What's he talking about here? Well, that's a quote from Hosea chapter six, verse six, where the Lord says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And the Lord says this in Hosea 6, right on the heels of what appears to be this amazing confession of God's people. They had rebelled, they were in idolatry. Hosea is a prophet. In verse one of chapter six, listen to what God's people say. Come, let us return to the Lord. Sounds great. Let us return to the Lord. I mean, that's repentance language, right? Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. Five verses later is when the Lord says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. You know what God is saying? He's reading right through their repentance that seems to be good on the surface, and yet he knows right below it in the core of their heart that they're transactionally trying to relate to God, that they're gonna return to the Lord so that they get something back. (laughs) When, When the Lord says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, what he was saying to his people in Hosea, what, he was, what Jesus is saying in Matthew 9 to the same group of religious people is I don't want your burnt offerings. I don't want your religious motions. I want your heart. I don't want a transactional relationship. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, is the Lord saying, I desire an intimate relationship with you, not a transactional one. I desire you I want your heart. Elizabeth Elliot, she tells a a fictitious story about Jesus and his disciples. Jesus is standing with his disciples one day, and he looks at them and he says, all right, we're gonna go on a journey. I want you to pick up a stone and carry it for me. And Peter, of course Peter, says, Jesus, why? And Jesus says, just pick up a stone and carry it for me. So Peter, you know, no size specifications, no weight specifications, picks up a tiny little pebble, sticks it in his pocket. And they start walking with Jesus. He says, come on. About lunchtime, he tells him to stop. He says, sit down, take your stone out. He waves his hand in the air, stones turn to bread, and he says, there's your lunch. Peter goes, pulls out his little tiny morsel of bread that's barely an appetizer, eats it and goes, aha, I think I get this now though. Jesus says, all right, we're gonna gonna continue this journey. Pick up a stone and carry it for me. Peter goes, aha. So he goes and he finds this massive boulder and he hoists this thing up on his shoulder and he's sucking wind and he's going down the path and he's dying, his legs are burning, he's tired, but he can't wait for dinner. And about dinner time, Jesus says to his disciples, Come over to the riverbank. He says, I want, to take your, I want you to take your stone and throw it in the river. So the disciples take their stone, throw it in the river. You know, Peter, shot puts his boulder into the river. And then Jesus says, okay, come on, follow me. And Peter is standing there dumbstruck. 
And Jesus looks at him and he says, Peter, who were you carrying that stone for? You see, sin is not just doing wrong things. Sin is doing right things for wrong reasons. Sin is a transactional relationship with Jesus. That is what the Lord is trying to teach here of what it means to be relationally lost in sin. A transactional relationship with Jesus is relational lostness. Now, what's the evidence of this? You know, because I would imagine you're sitting there going, I, well, what does that mean? What does it look like for me to have a transactional relationship with Jesus? Do I have a transactional relationship? I think that the simple answer, and I'll unpack it a little bit, of what it means to be relationally lost in sin, to have a, a transactional relationship with Jesus, is a joyless life, a life where you're, you're stripped of joy. Look at the two sons in this story, right? The younger son, after he goes and spends it all, he, he's coming back to the father, at least to the village, right, because he's hungry, he needs food. And what is he? He's anxious, he's worried, he's wondering, Am I gonna be able to get food? You look at the older son. He's just angry. He's angry. Transactional relationship to Jesus, with, which both of these sons in this story had to the father, result, results in joylessness. What it produces is processing life through a circumstantial grid. And everything gets processed through what is coming my way or what am I losing? Right? That's how it, a transactional relationship with Jesus will produce this circumstantial grid about what's coming or what's going. And the result is joylessness, which gets defined by a whole gamut of emotions, from anxiety to worry to fear to anger to discouragement, disappointment, depression, everything but joy. It's what's defined by a transactional relationship. But let me, let me try to explain it this way. Maybe this will help it hit home. Imagine a marriage that begins in intimacy. Imagine a marriage that begins as an intimate relationship that over time grows transactional. There's no more laughing together. Uh, there's no more tenderness. There's no more playfulness in the marriage. It's just all business, and typically that happens when the burdens of life start to stack up, right? You get a promotion at work, your career starts to really take center stage, or you have a few children, or you have aging parents that need care. These things build up, and suddenly your marriage becomes day after day a series of transactions. And all the joy and all the, the playfulness and the tenderness in the marriage is gone. And usually when that happens, you start to disappoint each other a lot quicker. You start to let each other down a lot quicker. You start blaming each other, maybe not verbally, but in your heart, you start blaming each other. The marriage just goes from intimate to transactional. That's a picture of what a vertical marriage to Christ looks like when it goes from intimate to being transactional. When there's no joy in the relationship, when everything is just processed through this grid of what's coming and going, when it's all business, when there's no just intimate 
enjoyment of Christ. You know, with the vertical marriage, here's what happens. You're still married. You still believe. You still understand you can't earn your way to God. Right? That's all still intact. But your relationship to Jesus has become cold and transactional. And all the joy is stripped. That's a picture of what it means to be relationally lost in sin. That leads us into the second point. What's it mean to be lost and found? Relationally lost in sin, but second, relationally pursued by grace. This is, by the time Jesus ends with this third parable, he's made it real clear that he is the one that's doing the searching. Right, Luke 19, 10, Jesus says, says, I came to seek to save the lost. He's the man in the first parable that seeks the lost sheep. He's the woman that seeks the lost coin, and he's the father that seeks the lost son. That he's the one that's doing the seeking. Now, typically, we read this parable of the prodigal son as the son, in verse 17, the younger son comes back to the father, repents, and then after he repents, the father welcomes him graciously back. But as we've looked at already, this younger son is not repentant. It's not repentance. It's self-preservation. It's more transactional relationship to the father. And so what we actually see here is an amazing picture of pursuing grace. Because do the, if you do the the stories in a row, you've got a sheep, as I mentioned last week, that could not rescue itself. You've got a coin that couldn't save itself. And now the third one, you got a younger son that can't save himself. He's unrepentant. He's still self-preserving. He's trying to transactionally get this thing done. He's dead. Can't save himself. And so you have the father filled with compassion and love that runs off the porch towards this younger son. There are two amazing pictures of grace in this parable. Absolutely phenomenal. The first one is this. The father runs off the porch. The son's coming back, and what we see here is the father going to to meet the son, the younger son, at the edge of the village. Now, the standard acceptable cultural practice of the day, what everyone would have expected, his family, the community, the village, is that the father would have gotten right up to the edge of the village, the son would have come up, and he would have said to his younger son, you have made a mockery of our family, You've made a mockery of this community. You are not welcome. That would have been acceptable, standard practice. What does the father do? He says he hugs and he kisses him. Second picture of grace in the ancient Near East. Patriarchs of families, fathers, were, were uh, well-respected in the community. They wore long robes. And it was, it was shameful for a patriarch to run in public. It was shameful for a patriarch to have to lift his robe up and run. And what do we see happening here? I want you to see this picture. You've got this son that's coming back to the village. And the entire village knew what had happened. In fact, there was probably word that this son was coming back. And so all eyes are, are looking down this road, watching this younger son walk back, the walk of shame, head bowed, walk of shame, and all eyes are on him, and then what does the father do? He leaves the porch, he lifts his robe up, and he starts running towards his younger son. And suddenly, 
all of that shame that was concentrated on that younger son turns. And now the father is bearing the shame of this community, of this village for his son. You see, the father bore his son's shame. Then you even go to the older son. The son comes back, they throw the party, and what's it say? The older son is standing outside, angry, refuses to go in. And this father leaves his own party. The entire community's there. A fattened calf is not just for a family. This is for the entire village. And everybody's at his house, and this patriarch has thrown this party Standard practice is your older son is being he's self-pity party. He's angry. Let him figure it out. If he's going to be angry, he doesn't need to be in this music and dancing. What's the father do? He leaves his party. Once again, a shameful act to go try to urge this older son to come home. And so you see, the father is bearing the shame for his sons. And it doesn't stop there, though. He doesn't just bear their shame. He showers them with kindness and with goodness and with generosity. Right? He hugs, he kisses the younger son, he brings him home, and what does he do? He gives him the best robe. And the best robe was the robe that was reserved for very, very special guests. His son gets it. He puts the ring on his finger. What is that? That's, that's the authority. He puts the ring on his finger saying, you are back in this family. You're getting the ring of authority as my son, which means what? My inheritance, it's half now, is yours again. You're fully reinstated to this family. Then he gives sandals for his feet, which was a communication to say you're a free man, right? Because slaves in that culture were barefoot. He says, you're not a slave. You're a free man. And then he kills the fattened calf, which, like I said, was a, was a calf for the entire village. It was the party. It's the party, as we saw last week, that is mirrored in heaven a celebration. And then you get to the older son. He, he showers his older son with kindness and grace and goodness. Verse 31, he says, son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. He says, everything I have is yours. Now, there's an incredibly important truth that we learn through this, this picture of grace. And that is that grace precedes repentance. That grace precedes repentance. The father showers kindness on his younger son to invite him back to the party and to invite him back into an intimate relationship with him. The father showers kindness on his older son to invite him to the party and to invite him into an intimate relationship, not a transactional one with him. Romans 2, 4 says this, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance Grace precedes repentance. In a church that I served at previously, there was a post-college age daughter that got pregnant out of wedlock. And her mom and dad were angry. 
and ashamed. And this young woman decided that she was going to give this child up for open adoption to a family that she knew. And she chose to do that rather than to marry the father of the child because she knew that she could not provide the support this child needed and she wasn't going to get the support that she needed. And this decision even further shamed these parents. So much so that they called together a family meeting with the daughter excluded. And they told the entire family, you will not make contact with her. You will not eat with her. You will not, you will not help her with her pregnancy. And all of this was to try to get, to shame this young girl into repentance because they believed that what they saw was a girl that wasn't visibly sad enough for the mistake she had made. That she wasn't visibly repentant. That she was gonna have this shameful open adoption. Essentially, they were trying to punish her into repentance. So a pastor at this church performed the, uh, the giving away ceremony of this child. And they had, they had families, uh, they had the family in, and, and it was a beautiful ceremony, a tremendous blessing to watch this young girl make the right decision to give it up for adoption and to, to put this child into the family's arms and to pray and all of that. And her parents were there. This pastor said that the parents stood at the back wall, didn't say a word, were angry, wanted nothing to do with it. Ceremony ended. This girl lived on with hurt, isolated, cut off from her family, and the parents lived on angry, ashamed, but happy in their mind that they had shamed her to at least understand the depth of her sin. Listen, God does not shame you into repentance. He loves you into repentance. He doesn't shame you into repentance. He bears your shame. When he sent his son to the cross, he bears your shame. And by that sacrificial act, loves you into repentance. Loves you into the party. And this brings us to our last point. What does it mean to be lost and found? Relationally lost in sin, relationally pursued by grace, and finally, relationally found in Christ. Why did the father throw a party? He just lost half his inheritance. Half the inheritance got liquidated. Younger son stole it all off, and, and when he lost half his inheritance. Why is he throwing a party? not to mention spending more money of the half of the inheritance that he lost. Verse 24, for this my son was dead and is alive again. Verse 32, for this your brother was dead and is alive. You say, wait a minute, the younger son wasn't dead? He wasn't dead. In fact, for a while there, he was having a great time until he started feeding pigs. Oh, but what was dead? The intimate relationship with his father. That's what was dead. And when the father got that back, he threw a party. 
God longs to have an intimate relationship with you, not a transactional one. You consider an earthly family. You have seen a transactional versus an intimate relationship between a father and a child. You know what a transactional relationship looks like between a father and a child. The child doesn't run to her daddy. The child doesn't smile when he's around his daddy. Oh, they get in the same car together. They go home to the same house. They're under the same roof. They even put their feet and their legs around the same dinner table. But it is a transactional relationship. You've also seen an intimate relationship between a father and a child, right? The child that runs to her daddy, throws her arms out. A child that smiles around her daddy. Child where there's, there's playfulness and there's tenderness and there's an intimate relationship. And God says, that's what I long for with you not a transactional one. You see, you can be in God's house. Like the older son, you can be in the father's house. You can never really leave. You can be in the house. You can come to church. Uh, You can go to a community group. You can go to a Bible study. You can tithe. And you can be functionally dead because you've got a transactional relationship with the father. And God longs have an intimate relationship with you through his son, Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ comes to rescue you, as he is trying to three times in a row hammer home to us, that when he comes to rescue you, where does he find you? He finds you functionally dead. Maybe looking like the younger son, maybe looking like the older son. Either way, transactional relationship, no intimacy, He finds you having wasted the Father's inheritance, your very life on your pleasures, on your pursuits. (laughs) And he comes to you and he picks you up and he brings you home and he puts the best robe on you, which is the robe of Christ's righteousness. And then he puts the ring on your finger to say, you are co-heirs with my son, Jesus Christ, of this heavenly inheritance. And then he puts the sandals on your feet to say, you're not a slave. You are free from sin. And then he kills the fattened calf and he throws the party because he's brought you back functionally from the dead, from a transactional relationship with God to an intimate relationship with the Father. You know, earlier I asked you what, what's, the, uh, what's the result of being relationally lost in sin? And I said, it's very simple, it's joylessness. What's the result of being relationally found in Christ? Joy. Joy. What what is the evidence that this younger son has been brought intimately back into a relationship with his father into the house? It's music. It's dancing. It's a party. Every so often, the Dickerson home has a dance party in the den. And we will turn on music, rather loud music, and we will begin to dance. And my kids will go crazy and do their dance without any inhibition that they would never do here in front of you. And mommy and daddy start to shag, or at least try to. My wife tries to teach me. She was born and raised, or not born, but raised in Charleston, South Carolina. And then daddy will do his funky chicken dance and the kids will start laughing. And there's joy and there's laughter 
and there's tenderness. You know, life in the family with burdens and responsibilities and all of the task-driven nature, nature of life can lead to joylessness. And every so often, you have to dance in the den, so to speak, to be reminded of the relationship and of the joy and the intimacy and the playfulness and the tenderness. And my question to you would be, are you enjoying Jesus? It's a simple question, but it's at the heart of the gospel. Are you enjoying Jesus? Do you know him? Do you cherish him? Are you listening to the music and dancing from a distance? Maybe it's the music and dancing that you see in a friend's life. Or are you right in the middle of the party enjoying the one who has rescued you and brought you home? Let's pray. Father, All of us, to some degree, repent of a transactional relationship with you. One that is run through a circumstantial grid. One that has stripped our joy. And yet, Father, you tell us that it's your grace and kindness that leads us to repentance, that leads us to a place of intimately enjoying you as father in the family. And as we sang this morning, Father, help us in our unbelief. Thank you for providing a meal called the Lord's Supper that we'll enjoy this morning that is all about this intimate relationship that you long for us to have. Father, I pray for those here that are sitting in, right in the middle of a transactional relationship with you. And I pray that you would draw them to yourself and that this meal would be the tangible, physical reminder of the rescue that you've performed on our behalf. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.